Uh, good morning. This morning, um, I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 16, beginning at verse 16 to the end, or yeah, to the end of the chapter. Or beginning of verse 19, sorry, to the end of the chapter. But when her owners, and referring now to the slave girl that had the spirit of divination that Paul had just delivered her from, um, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and, to, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, and he and his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And, he, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have, let, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited, and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May God bless this reading of his word this morning. Please be seated.
Last week, as I was listening to Pastor Steve give his sermon, in it he quoted or stated how he had come to faith in Christ. I walked up to him after the service and I said, are you going to finish this chapter today? He says, yep. I said, how about if I read it and maybe give a short testimony? And he said, well, let me think about that. No, he didn't. He said, go for it. And I'm not up here to put myself forward, but simply to give praise and testimony to my Lord Jesus Christ. Because this verse, these passages, are very personal to me. Um, You know, I was born many years ago (laughs) in a religious family. Mm, Not nominally religious, but moral. Um, I was schooled for 16 years, and in that schooling had religious education as part of each of those years. Um, I participated in regular Sunday worship practice in liturgy. I knew about God. I knew about Jesus. I knew about his Holy Spirit. And after several years in active military service and getting married to my wife Jane, who I'm pleased is here this morning in the back. In 1975, we were married. And finally had a career moving forward. I, by the time I was age 30, kind of felt like I knew how life was gonna work for me and for my wife and for our family. Um, In 1977 though, my wife came to faith in Christ. She was changing. She was making me very nervous. <laughs> she gradually realized that I was not saved. And that made her really nervous and made her pray hard for my salvation along with others that she had come in contact with. She actually had begun attending with a girlfriend a local Southern Baptist church and was was attending a weekly uh, Bible study. And for month after month, she kept pleading with me, asking me, encouraging me to come with her to one of those Bible study sessions. And I feigned one excuse after another, like I've been there and done that, studied out of the Bible, um, and nice for you, but I don't think I need it. One evening, however, I ran out of excuses. And I consented to go and attend this Bible study with her. Well, when we got there, There was no Bible study. There happened to be a little revival meeting going on. And lo and behold, the only seats available were like up in the front row. And so that's where I plunked myself along with her with that sense of, hmm, I really don't like being here now because this isn't a Bible study. I don't know what is going on here. And I'm not particularly happy, but I will endure it. Brother Black was preaching that night, and his key verse was Acts 16.31. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Midway through that service, I came under what I can only recall now as strong conviction that I had not in all my life believed in Jesus as he was describing that need to be. I understood that I, I had an intellectual understanding of Christ, but I wasn't believing in him on the basis of, my, of the salvation for my sins. I knew I was a sinner. I mean, I grew up essentially with the Ten Commandments. I mean, I knew that I had broken many of those multiple times. So the issue of sin wasn't so much a problem for me. It was the reality of Christ and, and for me. And as that sermon continued, I truly was under very strong conviction. And when it was over, uh, I could do nothing but go forward. And when I did and I prayed and asked the Lord Jesus to be the savior of my sins for me and to take, to take his work on the cross for me, um, it was like scales fell off of my eyes. That night, the Lord had given me ears to hear beyond hearing. And um, I was not sure all of that had happened. Frankly, that evening, the pastor and his wife went out with us, talked more about what happened, what salvation was, what had occurred. And um, I settled in on that reality. And then when we got home, I opened up a Bible Frankly, a Bible that I had studied out of, had notes in, and suddenly those words had a level of meaning that I had never seen before. Um, I had a seeing beyond seeing. And I knew then that something significant had happened to my life. And I can honestly say that from June 6, 1978 to this day, my life has not been and gone the direction I would ever have expected. And uh, it has never been the same as it was back in that day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Almost don't need a sermon, right? <laughs> hear a powerful testimony of God's word in somebody's life like that. But let's pray, and then we'll come to consider this text a little bit in depth together today. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the power of your word, how grateful we are for the power of your gospel, for this good news that Jesus Christ came and did what we could never ever hope to do for ourselves that by His work we have been saved, and that all that there is for us, which we have to even, even give you credit for this, is to believe upon Him, to lean our full weight upon Him. Father, we thank You for opening our eyes. We thank You for the mercy with which You have saved us. We thank You for the power of the gospel that has brought us from death unto life. And we ask, Lord, that as we look into Your Word here today, that you would help it to take meaning for us that it has not before. Father, that your Holy Spirit would use it, would open our eyes to it in ways that we have not seen it before. And that you would help us, Father, 
to continue to run the race with endurance and to grow and to serve you and to honor you in our lives because of the power of your word within us. So may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have a, we have a saying in English, don't we? It goes, goes like this, every cloud has a silver lining. You've all heard that saying, right? You can trace the origin of that saying, every cloud has a silver lining, at least that particular wording, you can trace it back to the 17th century poet, John Milton. He was a a Christian poet. And in one of his pieces of literature, he wrote this, Was I deceived, or did a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining upon the night? I did not err. There does a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining upon the night and casts a gleam over this tufted grove. And of course, you know what that sentiment is that Milton is conveying there, right? In every difficult situation, we can find some hopeful aspect if we view it through the proper lens. And as we've learned and as we've seen so often from God's Word, the proper lens isn't the earthly lens. It's not the lens of human experience and circumstance because if we look at our difficulties through that kind of a lens, it's going to be impossible most of the time to see the silver lining. But when we see our tough circumstances through the lens of the reality that God is God, that God is sovereign, and that God is always good, that's when we can learn to say with Paul, I rejoice even in my sufferings. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And we can learn to say more and more with the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We might learn to trust that there's a purpose behind this pain, that God, as Jerry Bridges used to say, never wastes pain, but uses it for purposes in our lives to glorify Himself and to grow us in grace and strengthen us to run the race with endurance. We can learn to say with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, what man meant for evil, God purposed for good. We see that reality, don't we, played out all the time, all throughout God's Word. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4 sums it up like this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. In other words, our God, who is sovereign over all things, He never causes evil, He's never the author of evil, nonetheless He is sovereign over all things, so that ultimately, no matter what's going on in this world, everything ends up working for His purpose. To accomplish His will. And so when we see Satan raging in the world around us, as he is raging in Acts chapter 16, 
against Paul, against Silas, against the ministry of the gospel. Yet what happens in the end by God's sovereign hand? Satan is thwarted. Every evil attempt is turned for good. God's purposes are accomplished. Salvation and redemption is accomplished. And those men who enslaved and imprisoned Paul and Silas and beat them mercilessly end up apologizing to them to the glory of God. God works to accomplish His purposes and there's no hope other than viewing every single circumstance of your life through that lens. Think about the story of Joseph in the later chapters of the book of Genesis. It's one of the most profound examples of this truth and this reality that God is sovereign and working everything, orchestrating everything together for His purpose, right? Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, literally sold into slavery by his own brothers because they were jealous of him. And he ended up in Egypt. Not a friendly place for him to be. And, and there in Egypt as a slave through a series of remarkable providences, Joseph came to be not a slave, but actually the right hand man of the Pharaoh himself which meant that he was in the perfect position to be able to help and to bless those brothers who had, who had sinned so grievously against him in the past. When they then came down to Egypt looking to buy food because there was a famine in their land. Now they got there, they didn't recognize Joseph at first, but he knew who they were, and when he revealed to them who he was, they wept bitterly because of what they had done to him. And he said, what you meant for evil, God purposed for good. And the good that he meant, the silver lining to the dark clouds of all of those years of suffering by their wickedness against him, was his ability now to forgive them, to bless them, to provide for them unconditionally, to show the love of God to them when they hadn't earned it. And that great redemption story, that's how historically the sons of Israel all came to live together in the land of Egypt. Where, of course, years later, a new Pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph. And who persecuted and enslaved the people of Israel for 400 years. Until God supernaturally redeemed them again and led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the the promised land, and that great redemption story, and the rest of the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, is how eventually God accomplished the far greater exodus. His ultimate purpose of redemption that He had sovereignly foreseen and planned since before the foundations of the world to bring through this nation the birth of His only begotten Son in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. And that story of Jesus' birth and life and death at the hands of wicked men and His his resurrection, that is how we have all come to be redeemed. Even as God took what was the most wicked act ever committed in history, the murder of the incarnate Son of God, and turned that into the greatest good that was ever accomplished, the salvation of people 
like you, like me, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And so our awesome God, He specializes in His sovereignty and in His mercy. He specializes in redemption stories, doesn't He? And people love redemption stories. Even unbelieving people love redemption stories. The best Hollywood movies are all redemption stories, aren't they? And every single historical example of God's sovereignly orchestrating things in order to accomplish His purposes, even using wicked, evil things, like the enslavement of Joseph, like the crucifixion of Jesus, in order to bring about redemption, every historical example of God doing things like that is a divinely appointed foreshadowing of that great work of redemption by Jesus on the cross. You remember, uh, you remember Peter's words all the way back in Acts chapter 2 that he, that he spoke as he was preaching to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who had delivered Jesus up to be crucified on that cross. Peter said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, you killed by way of the hands of, of lawless, godless men. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Ultimate good. And today, in the end of Acts chapter 16, this this story, God gives us another wonderful redemption story. Another historical example of of God sovereignly turning the wicked intentions of sinful people and and even the, the wicked purposes of the devil, turning them on their ear and working them together for good. And once again, this story of Paul and Silas being delivered from prison that's powerful in its own right, it's it's also more importantly a beautiful illustration of the gospel itself and of the answer to that question of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? So look at it with me together today and let's see how this, this deliverance from Paul and Silas from prison serves as such a perfect picture of the gospel by which then the jailer and his household all came to be delivered through faith in Jesus from sin and death. So remember with me, this is where we left off last week, as Ted was saying. We saw last time the story of two women in which the power of God and the power of His Word worked to liberate people from Satan's tyranny and sin's slavery and from the bondage of death and hell. And that power of God was typified in the lives of those two women. And the second of those two women was this slave girl who was living in Philippi, who was inhabited by an evil spirit of divination, who was being exploited by the wicked men in the city of Philippi because they were cashing in on her occultic fortune-telling abilities that she had because of this evil spirit who was indwelling her. She was, remember, running around after Paul and the others for days as the evil spirit inside of her tried to disrupt the work of the gospel by, by trying to infiltrate their ranks in order to lead people in the city astray from the gospel. That's what Satan does. And, and this demon was doing that through this girl until Paul, by the power and the authority of Jesus as an apostle, cast the demon out of that poor girl. 
So that's where we left off. Now, we don't know anything else about the girl. We don't know what became of her after that. All we're told here in the rest of chapter 16 is that these greedy, sinful men who were exploiting her got angry. All we know is that Satan was using this girl, and all we know is that the power of God freed her. And that's where we pick the story up in verse 19, where we learn that when she was freed from this demonic presence and power, her owners, these these guys, these cruel, evil men in Philippi who had enslaved her and, and were exploiting her, they were mad, they were enraged because... Their revenue stream had suddenly, by the sovereign, miraculous, supernatural power of God, had suddenly dried up. But they didn't care about the power of God, did they? They didn't care about this poor girl. They had zero compassion in their hearts. All they cared about was money. So, for one thing, this shows us just how fundamentally cruel and inhumane human beings can be, and how inhumane and cruel the institution of human slavery is. Any person with an ounce of of compassion or empathy or love in their soul would have absolutely rejoiced to see this girl be set free from the presence and the influence of a demonic spirit in her life. But these guys were enraged. Because their source of profit was gone. This girl, she was nothing more than a commodity to them. You remember in Acts, or not in Acts, in um, the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 5, you might remember the story of Jesus coming into the country of the Gerasenes where he encountered a man who was inhabited by an unclean demonic spirit, actually many, many spirits. And this man, when Jesus came, this man came out of the tombs. He had been living outside of the city and and in the graveyard among the tombs because the demons in him caused him to be so volatile and so violent that no one could control him. They would try to tie him up. They would try to chain him up with metal chains and it wouldn't work because he would wrench the chains apart, it says there in Mark 5. He literally would, if they'd shackle him, he'd break the shackles to pieces. Such was the power and the brutality of the demonic presence inside of him. And day and night, he would just cry out all night long and cut himself with stones. He was just tormented by the devil. Well, when Jesus came upon that tortured man in Mark 5, the, the spirit within him, the evil spirit within him, cried out to Jesus and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What do you want with me? Right? The demon, we saw this last week, the demons know who Jesus is. And in Mark 5, the demons pleaded with Jesus not to torment them. See, they acknowledged Jesus' greater power over them. When Jesus said, what's your name? The reply was, legion, for we are many. This poor man was inhabited by many, and and he had been tormented by many demons, not just one. You remember the end of the story, maybe. Jesus ended up casting all of these demons out of this man and into a herd of pigs. 
And all 2,000 of those pigs rushed down a steep embankment and drowned in the sea because of the spirits. And what was the response? Here this guy, everybody in town knew him. He'd been living among the tombs. He was tortured and tormented all his life. Now he's free. He's saying to Jesus, take me with you. And Jesus said, no, you stay here as a testimony to the power of God. But the people in the city didn't want him there and didn't want Jesus there. They said, Jesus, you need to get out of town. They weren't celebrating that this poor guy who had been tormented for so long was now free. They weren't celebrating because they saw the Son of God do a miracle. They weren't celebrating because the power of God had liberated somebody from Satan himself. No, they wanted Jesus out of town because they lost all their pigs. See, this is what sin does. This is what the love of money does. Those who desire to be rich, Paul warned Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich easily fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some, Paul says, who long for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's what was going on here in Philippi. These Men were so in love with money that they were practicing human slavery and instead of having compassion on the slave girl and being thrilled for her to be free of the oppression of a demon, they were blinded by their sinful greed, blinded even to the presence of the power of God through the Apostle Paul. Their hearts were absolutely devoid of any love, any compassion, any reverence for God. And their ears were deaf, and their minds were numb to the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching in that city. And that's what human sin does. It's what the love of money can very easily do. It can blind people spiritually to truth and reality. That's one of Satan's favorite tools, one of Satan's favorite schemes. So in a very real sense, see, the point is these men, in their sin, in their greed were complicit in Satan's purpose, not just to torment this slave girl, but to try through her to thwart the work of God and the power of the gospel. That's ultimately what the devil wants to do, right? He wants to deceive people in this world into rejecting God, rejecting His Word, rejecting the gospel, and he wants to do it by convincing people that everything that we need is here in this world. That if you're successful here, you heard Ted just testify. That's when you think you've got it made. That's when you think you're set. That's when you think the blessings of God are on you in a way that evidences that you have earned yourself favor with God. That's what Satan wants to tempt people in this world to think and to believe. So that ultimately, they'll reject the gospel and end up with Satan in everlasting destruction And apart from the glory of God in heaven. That's what Satan wants. So here are these men in Philippi. They're enraged at the loss of their money stream, their revenue stream. The 
they seized Paul, these, these masters of this slave girl, they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the marketplace in Philippi before the rulers and authorities of the city. The marketplace, by the way, in ancient times and in ancient cities, wasn't just a place to come and buy food and, and sell goods. It, it functioned as the city center in all kinds of social and, and, and civic ways, including being the place where the magistrates would, would be in order to judge court cases. So see, that's what these guys are doing here. They're dragging Paul and Silas into court. They're putting Paul and Silas on trial according to Roman law. And the first accusation they make, the first thing that they say isn't actually legal. It's racial. It's it's racist. These Jews are disturbing our city, they say. So they're they're tying their complaint against Paul and Silas to their, their Jewishness. Nothing new about anti-Semitism. It's interesting to note, actually, that there were four of them, right? Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And of those four ministers in Philippi, the only ones who got dragged before the authorities were Paul and Silas. Not Luke, not Timothy. Very possibly, very probably, because Timothy was half Gentile and Luke, very likely, was fully Gentile, not, not Jewish. And, and see, these men in Philippi know that Jewish people are unpopular in Roman colonies. They look down their noses on the Jews. So pointing to their Jewishness would, would prejudice the authorities against Paul and Silas from the get-go. And that's exactly what happened, right? They end up accusing Paul and Silas of advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. Technically, that's true. There was a Roman law that forbid Roman citizens from practicing foreign religions that weren't sanctioned in the empire. But how often do you think that law got enforced? Hardly ever, because all kinds of Roman citizens engaged in all kinds of pagan religions in their cities all the time. And of course, the real reason here that they wanted to have Paul and Silas locked up had nothing to do with Roman law. They were just being spiteful. They were just being vengeful in their response to Paul, destroying their their fortune-telling enterprise and cash cow. So these guys drag them in front of the authorities. They make these accusations. These Jews are causing trouble. They whip up and they manipulate a, a virtual riot in the city. Now everybody's angry with these guys. Another great strategy because the city officials are going to be quick to do anything to keep a riot from breaking out in their city, right? They certainly wouldn't want to proclaim a a verdict that ends up being unpopular with all the angry people and, and that would ignite all kinds of unrest in their city, right? Nothing new under the sun, again. We see that kind of thing going on all, all the time too, don't we? So essentially, without a fair trial, just in response to this mob rule that was boiling over, the, the magistrates acted quickly, they acted hastily, they acted rashly. They, they stripped Paul and Silas, they ordered them on the spot to be beaten, and then they threw them into the city prison, and they ordered the jailer, in verse 23, to keep them safely. Now, be careful of the word safely there. He doesn't mean treat them well and make sure they're safe. 
He doesn't care. Nobody, they didn't care about Paul and Silas personally. The word in this context means keep them securely. So verse 24, the jailer took no chances. He put them into the inner part of the prison. The maximum security part of that prison. The most secure area. And he also then takes this extra precaution of fastening their feet in stocks. Point is this. Ain't no way they're getting out of there, right? If it's up to them. Humanly speaking, they're in about as tight of a spot as they could be in, but there's nothing humanly speaking about this story, is there? Because God puts His divine power on display. Now, Paul and Silas didn't know in advance what God was going to do in the middle of the night. All they knew, and they knew this without any doubt as they sat there with their feet in stocks in the most secure inner part of the prison, all they knew and all they had to cling to and all they had to view their miserable circumstances through was this lens that in all things God is sovereign. And that through all of the deep waters and that in all of the fiery trials, God is present with His people. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't forsake. He's always attentive to every prayer. He knows the words before they come out of your mouth. He knows the thoughts before they occur in your mind. And He's divinely mindful of every care that you have. That's what's real. That's what's true, no matter what's going on. And when that reality is the lens through which we view whatever difficulties we face, then, like we saw a few weeks ago at Thanksgiving, our hearts don't need to become overcome with bitterness or discontentment or fear or or panic. When When we say, well, this circumstance isn't pleasant, but it is ordered by my God and He is with me in it and He must be working out some purpose because that's real. Then hearts can be full of gratitude for who God is, for the fact that He does order all of the events of our lives, for the reality that He is good in all of His ways, that He does care, that He is compassionate. And then faithful, grateful hearts can cast their cares on Him and cry out to Him and rest. Philippians 4, in the peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what the trouble is, no matter what the outcome is going to be. Paul and Silas didn't know the outcome. They just took their thoughts captive to the truth of who God is. So critically important, Christians. A.W. Tozer said, very famously, very memorably, that how we live our lives is directly linked to how we think about our God. That seems obvious. And yet, how often is it that even though our theology is all straight on paper, when we get into the weeds of difficult circumstances in life, we're not trusting Him, we're not leaning on Him. Here's what Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is absolutely the most important thing about us. 
The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Were we able to extract from every man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. A right conception of God is basic, not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later fail and collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's why theology matters. Not so that you can win an argument but so that you can worship God and trust Him and lean on Him and be full of gratitude and cast your cares upon Him and find the peace that surpasses all understanding whatever circumstance you're going through in life. So here, Paul and Silas, right? You know that what they thought about God was the most important thing about them because here they are bound, here they are imprisoned, they've been severely beaten with rods. They're bruised, they're bleeding Whatever I went through last weekend that made me in such a bad mood had nothing to compare with this. I mean, from a human vantage point, this circumstance that Paul and Silas is in would easily seem entirely hopeless, entirely dire. And yet, they don't lie awake fretting. They don't lie awake freaking out. They don't succumb to to panic. They spend the whole night praying and singing praises to God. Later in his ministry, um, Paul would, would write a letter to the church that had been planted and that had grown in this same city of Philippi. And you know that that letter to the Philippians was written during another time when Paul was sitting in prison, that time in Rome. And you know that in that letter, written to this city in which he had suffered so much, and the church there, written from a prison cell in Rome, you know that in that letter Paul said what about rejoicing? In the Lord. Philippians 4 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so we learn here that praising God doesn't depend on human circumstances, does it? Which is very common to our human instincts, which is very. Or, 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 I'm sorry, very inconsistent, very contrary to our human instincts. And it's very inconsistent, it's very contrary to American cultural assumptions. Praise has to come from pleasant circumstances in our country, in our culture, in our human instincts. 
That's biblically not sound. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always from a prison cell. Paul knew what hard circumstances were, right? Paul knew what it meant to really suffer. Doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he talk about being so utterly burdened beyond his own strength that that there were times when he despaired of life itself? That doesn't mean he was complaining. It means he experienced the very human and natural and understandable desire to rather go be with the Lord in glory than to keep suffering here. And yet, he was able to rejoice while he suffered in the truth and in the reality that in all things, God is always sovereign and God is always and unfailingly good. So no matter what I'm going through, he said there in 2 Corinthians 4, I don't lose heart. Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Praising God doesn't depend on happy human circumstances. And true Christian joy is not just the product of pleasant experiences. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians 5.22. And so Christians who are filled with the Spirit experience joy. And remember what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. Paul says it's in contrast to being under the influence of wine. Don't let alcohol influence your behavior in in an undue and sinful way. Rather, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit who indwells you, the Holy Spirit who fills you with His presence, Christians who are under the influence of His indwelling person bear the fruit of joy, no matter what their circumstances. Because the God who indwells them sovereignly ordains and controls their circumstances for His glory and for their good. And they know that. And so instead of wallowing in miserableness and discontentment and self-pity, Paul and Silas sat there in their stocks, bruised, battered, praising God, singing praises to God. Because the bottom line, there in that prison, in those horrendous circumstances, they were walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. And that's how you can know. It's not based on your circumstance, it's based on what's being born in you in the middle of your circumstance. Is it stuff of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, or stuff of the flesh? Here they're obviously walking in the Spirit because they're full of joy, even though their circumstances are miserable. And while they were praying and while they were singing praises to God with all the rest of the prisoners and the whole prison listening, suddenly, not randomly, but suddenly, not by chance, but by providence, there was an earthquake. Powerful enough to shake the whole foundation of the prison and and cause all of the doors, all of the doors to open. Doors to the cells all flew open. Doors to the outside all flew open. And also, everyone's bonds. How this works beyond the supernatural power of God, I have no idea. But everyone's bonds, their chains, their manacles, their stocks, all became unfastened all at the same time. So here's God working 
both by exercising sovereign control over the natural world through the earthquake, and also, I think, supernaturally intervening in the world also by causing every door and every shackle to be opened. Do you know and do you trust and do you have confidence that this world is God's world? That every part of it answers to His sovereign command? Satan is not the sovereign one here. Luck and chance and fate and all of those things are just convenient excuses that people invent who want to deny that God is in charge. God is the sovereign one. Now this jailer obviously felt the earthquake too and woke up. When he got himself together and looked out at the prison, he saw all the doors were opened. He assumed, like any normal people would assume, that all of the prisoners would have taken advantage of all the opened doors and escaped. And that would be very, very bad for him because in Roman law, it's a death sentence to lose a prisoner. No matter what the circumstances are, just to make an example of you, even if it was an earthquake, we put you to death so that the next guy in line makes sure to do every single thing humanly possible to never let a prisoner escape. And so this guy thinks, I'm facing death anyway, so he draws his sword intending to kill himself because he's sure all the prisoners are gone. And then suddenly out of the darkness, Paul's voice cries out, Stop. Don't harm yourself. And he says, we're all here. I think that, I love that little detail. That gets overlooked sometimes. But they were all there. It wasn't just Paul and Silas who were there. All of the prisoners were still inside the prisoner. I mean, sinful people, right? Other than Paul and Silas. Hardened criminals, no doubt, most of them. What would it take for your average law-violating criminal to stay in the prison if he suddenly found himself unshackled and staring through a wide-open door? What would it take? How about an obvious display of the sovereign power and authority of the God to whom the two most recent inmates had been singing and praying to all night? You're sitting there listening to them pray to the sovereign God of the universe. You're sitting there listening to them sing hymns all night long. And all of a sudden, God does this. Maybe you'll stay around to see what God does next. The impression that the power of God made on the other prisoners transcended even their basic human instinct to run. So the jailer called for lanterns to be brought. He rushed into the prison. All of the prisoners that were there, he's overwhelmed, trembling with fear, verse 29, because he too understood by what power. This wasn't an accident. Whatever happened in there can't all be attributed just to a a natural earthquake. He falls down. Before Paul and Silas, he's utterly undone because he understands that the might and the majesty of their God has been put on display. So he brings them outside the prison. And straight away, first thing that's recorded is that he asks him this all-important question. What must I do to be saved? 
listen, this jailer knew why Paul and Silas were in his jail. He understood the charges against him. He understood why they'd been locked up. They had been proclaiming an unlawful religion. They had been preaching this gospel there in Philippi for for some time, it says already. And remember, that demon-possessed girl had been chasing around after them, shouting, what? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So the jailer knows what their message is. And now this earthquake and every door being opened, every bond being broken, now, see, he sees all of this as a massive divine confirmation that the God of Paul and Silas is the true God. And that this God is the true source of salvation. Some people try to say, oh, he wasn't talking about eternal salvation. He was talking about salvation of an earthly kind from the Romans who would punish him. Well, no prisoners escaped. He's not facing any earthly punishment. I imagine his superiors are going to be thrilled with him that a massive earthquake happened and all the doors flew open and he kept all the prisoners inside. He's not talking about any earthly kind of salvation or deliverance. What he's doing is giving voice to what every single image-bearing human being knows and understands, even though we all in our natural sinful state before we're saved, we suppress this undeniable truth in our unrighteousness. And the truth is this, God is, God is awesome and great. And I must make an account before Him. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 119 or Psalm 19. The skies proclaim His handiwork. It's only the worst fool who says in his sinful heart, there is no God. Because, Romans 1, God has made His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature as the holy God to whom we must give account. He's made it all clearly perceived in everything that He's made. And people know it. The great physicist Albert Einstein was not a Christian. He definitely suppressed the truth about God in unbelief and in his unrighteousness in all kinds of ways. Said all kinds of things about God and all kinds of things about the universe that are decidedly unbiblical. And and yet still, in his unbelief, in all of his knowledge and understanding of physics and the, and the known universe, he could not deny that God is. Or that the heavens and the stars that he sees in the sky are somehow the product of random chance or God, in his words, playing dice with the universe. God is a powerful designer, he knew. The French chemist and microbiologist Louis Pasteur, famous for of course, his discoveries in the areas of vaccinations and the process of pasteurization that led to the prevention of all kinds of diseases in this world. He said, I love this, one of my favorite quotes. Louis Pasteur said, a little bit of science will take you away from God, but a lot of science will lead you right back to Him. I love that. 
he's honest enough to admit that, that focusing on the natural process of creation, some might distract you from the reality of the Creator, but the more you probe the mysteries of this created order, the more you see the glory of the Creator. And of course, um, any amateur historian who cares to be honest will admit that the greatest advancements in the arena of scientific revolution have come by way of scientists who believed in the reality of God and many of them were Christians. Albert Einstein believed in the reality of God. Copernicus did. Schrodinger did. Heisenberg did. Francis Bacon did. Blaise Pascal did. Gregor Mendel, Galileo, Leibniz, Kelvin Carl Gauss and Nicholas Volta, electric theory, right? Mendel, Newton, Kepler, Pasteur, Max Planck, Michael Faraday, Charles Babbage, countless current living physicists and astrophysicists and chemists and biologists and geneticists and doctors. Legitimate scholars in every scientific discipline who not only acknowledge that the science compels and affirms and fuels their belief in a divine creator, but in many cases they have placed their faith in the reality that the eternal divine creator God is most perfectly revealed in His incarnation in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only way to be reconciled to the Father. And see, that is the the deep, basic human longing that is common to every human heart. How can I be made right with my Maker? And in our sin, we'll tend to try to answer that in all kinds of ways that end up being convenient to our sinful desires. Sometimes going so far even as to deny God, as great fools do. But at its core, every human heart stained and deluded with sin, knows, knows that God's invisible attributes and divine nature and eternal power are stamped all over this creation. And knows that our deepest need is to be made right with Him who made us. And is desperately, even if, even if misguidedly, trying to know how that might be possible. And, and that's what this Philippian jailer is saying. All right, I've lived my whole life running from him. I've lived my whole life suppressing his truth, but now he has put me on notice by displaying his power. How can I be saved? How can I be saved? I told you my story last week. Ted told you his today. I spent my whole life running from him. I spent my whole life doing what was right in my own eyes. I went to Sunday school. I memorized all the verses. But I didn't believe. I didn't trust Him. And I came here to the youth pastor's office and he said to me, what's your understanding of the gospel? And I said something lame like, well, Jesus offers us salvation, but we have to do what's necessary to earn it. I have to... I have to live my life in a way that's worthy of it to get it in the first place. And then I said something honest and desperate like, try as I might, I keep messing it up. And I'm afraid I'll never earn it. And he said, of course you won't. You can't. No one can. 
Salvation can never depend on what you do or you'll always mess it up. It always only depends on what Jesus did for you in spite of you, in spite of every sin-stained thing you've ever done. That's the gospel that woke me up, that opened my eyes. That's the gospel that opened Ted's eyes. My chains fell off. My heart was free. This jailkeeper in the Roman city of Philippi knew. Knew that God is. And knew that he, the jailer, fell short of that glorious God's power and holiness. And so he simply asked these ambassadors of the crucified and risen Christ, who is the eternal, uncreated Son of God, he simply asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be made right with the only true God who is? So notice the combination of the eternal soul's recognition of its need to be reconciled to the one true God, but also the sinful soul's insistence that that this must involve something that I do. Surely there's got to be something that I have to do. Surely there has to be something that I'm capable of doing. When really the terrible reality is that our sin is so serious that there's literally no more that we could ever possibly be capable of doing about it than a dead man is capable of raising himself up out of the grave. Or, to use Jeremiah's analogy, then a leopard is capable of changing its spots. Or, to use God's analogy in Acts 16, then Paul and Silas were capable of breaking their own shackles, their own stocks, and bursting open the prison doors by themselves, for themselves, and setting themselves free from their Philippian bondage. See how God tells great redemption stories that perfectly portray the gospel? They were hopeless by themselves. They were hopeless in themselves. They were wholly dependent upon the power and the authority of God who opened the doors, who broke the chains. And that's the gospel. What do you have to do? Just trust Him. Just trust Him because He's the one who does it all. They were wholly dependent on the sovereign power and merciful of the all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God of creation to shake the earth, to throw open the doors, to break the chains. Wholly dependent. I am, you are, all of us, on the sovereign power and mercy of the omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God of creation to shake us out of our unbelief to throw open the doors of our sinful souls, to break the bonds of our sinful hearts, to make us even able to ask, what must I do to be saved? And to have the faith to believe upon Jesus. Because Ephesians 2 says that faith, along with the whole process, is a gift of God. That you say thank you for, not that you boast in. So the only answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is not, you got to do the best that you can do. God will make up for the rest. you got to live in line with God's infinite, holy, righteous standards, and then if you do that well enough, He'll save you. Because in our sin, no one can ever do that. And so the only answer is the one that Paul gave to the Philippian jailer. Believe 
believe. Believe means not just understand, but it means believe that it's true for you and it means trust it. Lean on it and you shall be saved. Lean on Him and you shall be saved. Put your whole confidence, place your whole eternal hope, put all of it in what Jesus did, in what Jesus has done, instead of whatever imagine, or whatever you imagine that you could ever do. Just lean on Him and you shall be saved. And so this pagan man, this Roman Gentile, previously unbelieving Philippian jailer, heard that gospel message. That reconciliation with the one true eternal God can't ever depend on on us doing something to get it ourselves, but can only ever depend on Him and on, on what He did. Salvation can only ever come simply by believing and casting your eternal weight on Him. Believe. And He did. And then He was baptized. Right? We all can see and we can all recognize and we can all admit if we look back at that moment of salvation, that even that ability to believe was a gift that He freely gave. So verse 31 says that Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer to do this. He'd spent his whole life running from God, chasing false gods, trying in his strength to assure himself and maybe everybody else that he was a good enough guy for eternity suddenly realized he's no more able to free himself from the impossible bondage of sin than Paul and Silas were able to break themselves out of that jail. And so he trusted Christ. Verse 32 says, Paul and Silas, they spoke this gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to everyone who was in the jailer's household. And they all believed in God's free grace, by God's free grace, because after the jailer washed Paul and Silas's wounds, they washed him and his whole household in Christian baptism. And then the end of the story is simply that God providentially and sovereignly vindicated Paul and Silas. Proved even to the magistrates of the city that they had been treated unjustly. They're Roman citizens and you never even bothered to ask. The police were humbled. The magistrates were humbled and had to come and apologize to the servants of God. Listen. The eternal, uncreated God who made this whole universe out of nothing, by the sheer power of His will and His, and His word, let there be light. This God who said to a man who had been dead for four days, Lazarus, come forth, and then Lazarus did. This God who made the earth shake and the doors fly open and the chains fall off. This God who was born in a manger and died on a cross and was raised from the dead and did all of that for you. So that simply by trusting, simply by believing, you might be saved in spite of yourself and live forever. He is your God. He is your adoptive Father. He's the one who did that for you, what you could never do for yourself. He's the one who gave you what you weren't even looking for. He's the one who sovereignly orchestrated the literal moving of heaven and earth to become incarnate in human flesh. 
to become the only one, to become the only way for us to be saved. And so in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your hardships, can you ask yourself, can I trust Him? Do I trust Him to be there for me? To be there with me in whatever the trial is, in whatever the hardship is? Because by His sovereign order, He is working it all together for my good. Can I trust Him? Him who spared not His own Son, can I not trust Him to give me all things that I need? I can. Because that's the God who He is. So Christians, believe on Him, trust Him. Walk by faith in Him in every circumstance that He ordains for your life and view it through the lens of His goodness because He loves you and gave His own Son for you and did everything for you that you could never do for yourself. And His love is an everlasting love. Amen? Pray with me together today.